We've grown accustomed to having everything we want on demand and at really fast speeds, essential solutions at our fingertips. So because the biopsychology has changed, we're seeing the cost of lead magnet or ebook opt-ins really go up quite dramatically over the past couple of years, especially. That being said, there's a couple of types of lead magnets, which are still working really, really well. And those are checklists and templates. This is James Schramko. James Schramko here. Today, we're going to be talking about three evergreen marketing strategies to help you grow, no matter what Facebook does with Will Wang. Now, Will, welcome to the call. Thanks for having me back on again. You're always back here with our Get Lead series. Of course, this topic is pretty sweet for me because I've been talking about this concept of own the race course. And at the core premise of it is about control, controlling what's reasonable. And I say that because sometimes people will challenge me and say, oh, but that's not own the race course or, or whatever. When I say, okay, I like this platform or whatever. That's why I say what's reasonable because we can't control everything. Okay. Like if you want to control absolutely everything, it's hard to do. You've watched uh, guys like Donald Trump, for example, get banned from social media platforms. In the end, he has to create his own. I think at one point he couldn't even send emails because other people control the network that the email goes across. So we can't control absolutely everything. There are elements of control we can have. But when I do see people get too heavily dependent on someone else having all the control, that's when it can be a disaster. And of course, one platform that's very sticky that people are circulating around, building businesses on is Facebook. So I do want to talk about that. I've managed to stay just fine without Facebook. I've got my podcast. I've got my membership in a private, you know, away from Facebook environment which I've done from before there were Facebook groups. I do publish on other platforms. That's part of Own the Race Course, is go and put your racehorse on other people's platforms and bring back the prize money to fund your own race course. Generally, your own platform that you can control, the most control you have is your database. And usually, you, know, you can pick that up and move it from email provider to email provider. You can control, at least uh, you have some control over where you point your domain name. You can control where you store your backup files, your videos, your audios, your PDFs, etc. So there's a lot of things we can control. But when it comes to marketing, I'm just a huge fan of Evergreen. This podcast is episode 920. So clearly we're on an ongoing sort of trajectory of stability, even though it seems like the entire world has melted around us over and over again over the last more than decade. So let's talk about some of the changes that are happening with Facebook because obviously this is a sensitive thing. And you know I've been signaling this for many years. People are sick of Facebook. They're annoyed by Facebook. They don't like the changes that are going on. They don't like the censorship that's happening. I want to know what you're seeing as a marketing agency, Will. Yeah. So James, I think we've had this conversation thinking back to the episodes we've had over two years where we've been seeing you know, this gradual change in Facebook, where they get more and more restrictive in terms of the data that we get as advertisers. And they change their platform to, you know, for them, it's like, let's make it so it's better to keep people on the platform. But at the same time, it's becoming much, much harder as an advertiser. So we've been seeing these kind of changes flowing through. Some of it is their fault. Some of it isn't. Uh, we had the big iOS clash between Apple and Facebook a little while ago, which took away a lot of good data. And now what we've actually seen is over the last month or two, Facebook has come through and stripped out a lot of the interest targeting that we used to have as advertisers. So it is getting more and more difficult to use as a platform. And at the same time, there are bigger and bigger advertisers coming through as the big corporates have kind of figured out how the algorithm works. They're now putting their big multi-billion advertising budgets into Facebook, which is squeezing out a lot of you know, smaller businesses 
not necessarily small, but you know, if you're only spending about a million a month, that doesn't really compare to what some of these bigger companies are coming through and spending. So getting harder and harder as independent advertisers on the platform itself. I like what you said there. You know, the people who are only spending a million dollars a month, they're going to be crying about it. It does make me laugh a little bit when I see an internet marketer who spends five grand a month whinging about Facebook as if they were somehow a player. That puts the scale on it, doesn't it? The big people are spending millions of dollars per month. Like it's the 80-20 happening here. So we have to think that the platform is geared around the big spend. Do you think some of the removal of interest targeting, those sort of things have been a result of some of the whistleblowers who have brought arguments you know, out to the public saying, hey, Facebook knew that people, you know, they were targeting people and keeping people on the platform, even though in some cases it probably wasn't in their best interest. So these are just allegations. I don't know the facts on this, but I've definitely seen news that there's a bit of an uproar about it. People are not happy about this. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, it's a mixture of things. And so what I think is, and this is obviously just both our opinions, but I think there's definitely an element of people starting to realize exactly how much data Facebook has on them. And the fact that, you know, you can have a conversation with someone offline and off world, the next thing you know, on Facebook, you're getting ads served about the product. So people start to figure out, hey, there's something going on here with the data. The other side of it too, is I think with these big advertisers coming on board, you know, these big companies, advertisers, one of the key metrics is brand building. And it makes sense, right? Once you get the company to a certain stage, you don't really care so much about the direct response stuff. It's more about the branding. And you know, all companies go through that growth period. The bigger companies, branding is definitely more important to them than direct response, and that's okay. But then I think what Facebook has started to do was to realize we get so many small issues and complaints from the smaller advertisers who are always sending us tickets about this and that, you know, the tech, the interest targeting, all of that kind of stuff. Whereas the big players and the big you know, companies spending money on marketing, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars and they're not raising a single ticket because they just don't care about the smaller stuff. They just want everyone to see their brand. So I think what Facebook has started to realize is, well, we've got these bigger players here who are really you know, putting big budgets behind us. Why do we want to deal with the smaller side of town where we get most of our complaints from? Why not just make it easier for ourselves and more profitable to go after the bigger end of town? And I think, you know, the factor of whistleblowers, yes. I think the bigger advertisers coming on board even more so now, yes. And I think the third, you know, they had a massive drop in terms of their share price. So they're trying to scramble and get bigger advertisers on board. And I think for them, it's the balance of, you know, how much money they're making, how much the profit is, and how much support they've got to give to the advertisers to hit the same profit levels. So what changes have you seen, Will, as an agency of what's working and what's not working compared to last year? I think the biggest change I've seen is, again, removal of some of the interest targets. So we had clients where we had successful campaigns, campaigns were performing really well, and overnight, the actual performance dipped. So for us, it's a really worrying sign. It means something's changed with either the tech or the platform. And the tech and their funnels were fine, so it had to be the platform. And as we started diving in, figuring out exactly what's going on, you know, why have the performances dropped overnight? Because that shouldn't happen. We realized that a lot of the interest targets we had previously have dropped off. So even some of the bigger ones, like Tony Robbins, that used to be you know, an interest target we had, that got removed from the platform. So there was a lot of changes around that. Now, I think more and more so, that's going to be something that we see more of potentially, or the interests are going to get higher level and broader, which means that your ads get shown to more people but they might not be super targeted like they were previously. So what does that actually mean to the, the user, like for some of the campaigns you're running at campaign level? 
Yeah, what it means is that instead of Facebook finding someone who's more likely to buy or to become a lead, they're now showing the ads to a wider range of people. And what that ultimately would mean for your budget is that it's going to cost you more to get in front of the right people. So your campaigns will go up in cost potentially, and you've got to find different ways of using the platform now, whereas you don't have this super tricky targeting stuff that used to work before where you built several layers of audiences and all of that kind of stuff. I think it's actually a lot better now for a good marketer because you can go back to the fundamentals of marketing and human psychology, and the things that work long-term, which is kind of why we're having this episode here to talk about the evergreen things that we're seeing. Okay. So it costs more, it's more general. Your direct selling is not as straightforward as it was because it's like you can't get as laser focused. Now you have to go out with a shotgun <laughs> is what I'm hearing. So let's talk about these three strategies that you're sharing. Are they going to work for business to consumer or business to business or are they universal? So they're mostly universal. I'm going to share a specific example for both in terms of how we've used them for B2B and also for B2C. But the more important thing is understanding you know, where these strategies came from. But these strategies aren't new. They've been around for thousands of years, and they probably will be around for thousands of years going forward. And that's why I like them so much. All right, let's get in there. Start with number one. Great. Number one is all about competitions. So competitions, if you think back to you know, very early stages of advertising, when it's just radio, or you had to go and read a newsletter or a magazine and click out a coupon or a competition at the back of that, mail it in to win something, that's coming back. And I think you know, we're running competitions for some of our clients and we're seeing really, really great results. Like leads coming in for less than a dollar, which is unheard of in terms of Facebook for the past couple of years. Like just for comparison, what would a lead cost for a webinar registration? For webinar registration at the moment, you'd probably be paying anywhere upwards of to $20 or more per registration. And off the back of that, you probably only get 20% of people actually turning up to the webinar. So it's become really, really expensive. But if you have a good competition for the same leads, obviously it needs a bit of nurturing, but for the same leads, you can get them onto your email list and your database for less than a dollar, which is just unbelievable. And then you could invite them to a webinar. Exactly. And, you know, I think people listening to this episode have to take into account that I'm not saying don't do webinars, you know, don't do the strategies we're going to talk about or do them. It's a gradient. It's not yes or no. And I've seen advertisers still making webinars work, still doing that kind of strategy. It's just getting harder, especially if you're not spending that much money to figure this stuff out every single month. Right. Which you are because you've got different clients and you're spending lots of money. So we're looking for the trends here and that's sort of a guide that you know, your mileage may vary, your campaigns. Like I know people who sell $65,000 products from webinars. Mm. They can probably still afford to pay $100 for someone to show up to the webinar, which is what your numbers sort of work out at, and then sell 20% of those people a $65,000 product. The numbers will work out for them. But that is not everyone. And certainly there is a whole plethora of uh, internet marketing strategies taught, like you know, run ads, fill your webinar, pitch your product, your signature thing, and then sell it, and then just you know put it on autopilot, may not work the same as it did a year ago or a few years back when those things maybe were working, but the IP on that, the intellectual property is gone stale. It doesn't translate in today's market for every single situation. Okay, what next? Yep. So, um, well, actually, I'll, uh, I'll go a little bit deeper into the competition as well. So if anyone's listening, thinking, how do I get the competition running? I'll go into some of the things I've seen with the competition to make it work. So first and foremost, you know, as James was saying, you need your own race course. You need your own nurture system after competition. So even though someone's registered for a competition, it doesn't necessarily make them a good lead. You've got to nurture, you've got to qualify, 
usual stuff that you do with emails. With the competition, the way it works, most important part of it is having a relevant prize. So for example, if you have an iPad or a MacBook Pro prize, you're going to get everybody and the dogs registering for it, right? You're going to get people using fake names, fake emails, creating different accounts just for the chance to win. So you've got to pick a prize that's relevant to what you're trying to do. So for example, in a B2B context, if I was to try and use a competition for ourselves, I might give away a free marketing campaign. And I'm not going to get people who only have businesses because if you're not a business, why would you want a free marketing campaign? Like it doesn't make sense. So this is very important. We've talked about this a few times. Instead of offering a free iPad, which you know even a three-year-old kid would want, yeah, like that's a broad thing that everyone wants, but it's not necessarily related to the product or service that you sell, unless you're Apple, of course. <laughs> in which case, by all means, but. Yeah, I think offering something that is of interest to the target audience is a very good filter. Yep, exactly. And obviously, it's going to have some value around it. No one's going to enter a competition for a $10 prize, make the value about 500 or 1000 That's the kind of level that we've seen working really, really well. The second part of it is with a competition, You know, if you think back to the old school competitions, like on the radios and magazines, one key element they really miss is the virality. So whenever we run a competition, I want to have every single person who enters the competition to bring someone else along with them. And the way that we do that, we used to do it via Facebook Messenger chat, and we kind of abuse the system a little bit. So that doesn't quite work anymore. We used to get a lot of good virality, just getting people to ping their friends on Facebook or for Messenger. Unfortunately, if you try the same strategy these days, you're running the risk of getting your account banned. But what we're seeing is if you send people out emails, and I know everyone's going to be like, well, you know, the email open rates aren't as great as it used to be before. But if you think about it, the first email that you send someone to tell them they're registered for the competition, people are very likely to open that email, right? I mean, we're seeing 60, 70% open rates on the first email we send to tell them, hey, here's your ticket for the competition. You can really easily use that first email to drive virality and to get them to register or share with their friends and get more tickets coming through. Now, why would they share with their friends if it reduces their chance of winning? Yep. So you've got to incentivize that and make it a no-brainer to share. And the way that we do that is often saying, if you share it with one friend, we're going to give you three extra entries. And typically what people think, and or this is what I think people think in terms of competitions, is that, look, they don't mind their friends winning the competition as well, but they also know that they're going to get a lot of extra entries, which obviously helps their chances. And then their friend will get three extra entries for inviting their friend and their whole odds go down. Exactly. It's an interesting one. <laughs> okay. It's an interesting one, but for some reason it seems to work. So. Well, I, I totally get it. Like certainly there is a lottery mentality in Australia. You know, every time there's a big prize, there's lines out the door of the lottery office, you know, collection points. You can see that people like to win things. So I understand how this might work. So that's a great strategy, competition ads. And are you using any sort of other plugins or tools or things to speed that up? I know, for example, the platforms that I'm using, um, they can give people extra, unlock extra content, for example, once they land on a page. So can you take people off the platform with the Facebook ad or do they stay on Facebook? No, so we take everybody off platform. Right. And there's a, a whole number of competition gadgets and you know, apps and things out there. Just Google it, you'll find a whole bunch of variety, a whole bunch of varieties. We use a third party app that uh, helps us do all of this kind of stuff, especially with the tracking of you know, who's referred and how many tickets people get. And you're right, the whole idea of unlocking something else for you know, referrals, that's great as well. And we definitely use that as part of the strategy. It's definitely built into 10X Pro. That's why it came to mind. It's something I haven't switched on yet, but I think it could be quite useful for that. Mm. What's uh, the second 
evergreen strategy? The second evergreen strategy is quizzes and personality kind of. So the way I think about it is, you know, what's an old school strategy that's still working at the moment in terms of magazines, radio, TV ads. If you think about old school trashy magazines, right? What type of lover are you? What's your spirit animal? Like those type of quizzes have been around for thousands of years. And it just really talks to someone's curiosity and their sense of not selfishness, but their sense of self, right? Wanting to know what they represent as or what the answer is for them. So you can see these also played out online a lot, like what celebrity are you? So as marketers, I look at that and go, well, it's really interesting that even with all the advanced strategies we had previously, we were still running these quizzes where it's like, you know, what's your best celebrity match? And it just goes to show that people are focused inwardly. They're focused on themselves, which is you know, not good or bad. It's something that we use as marketers. And it's something that's worked well in the past. And I think will work well, really well going into the future as well. And so it's something that we've built recently for both our B2C and our B2B clients to kind of take the work off their hands when it comes to giving us the details and becoming a lead, right? Because the market, as far as I've seen it, doesn't necessarily want to read another 50-page ebook. And we are seeing the cost for lead magnets like ebooks and things like that slowly creeping up over time. But if you have a quiz or a personality you know, questionnaire, let's call it, that gives them an exact answer or exact solution for their problem, you're more likely to get not just more leads, but better leads as well, especially when it comes to a, a B2B context. So you're running this quiz. Do you run a sort of a text ad or a video ad? And then does it link off site to a, a built funnel? Is that how it works? Yeah. So we typically run a text ad. So text and images. Videos, we've seen it working here and there, but it's really, it's, you know, video is so subjective depending on how good you are behind camera, how good your team is, all of that kind of stuff. So for ease of implementation, we typically just use straight up text copy with an eye-catching image behind it. Are they long or short? Uh, both work. But if it depends on how saturated the market is, how sophisticated the market is, the benefit you're trying to sell them by answering the quiz. So for example, if it's a BDC context where it's, you know, they don't really necessarily need to understand that product, but it could be something like, what's the best diet for you? That type of quiz, you don't really need a low long form copy. People kind of get it already. In a business context where, for example, for ourselves, we might go out to market and say, what is the next step of your marketing or what marketing strategy is going to work best for you? You might have to give a little bit more context behind it, both to filter out the people clicking on it and also to get them to invest into the idea of finishing this quiz. Yeah, I've certainly, you know, I've seen a lot of this. Obviously, um, I worked closely with Ryan Levesque for many years while he grew out his Ask business. I've read all his books, been to his workshop, (laughs) seen behind the scenes. I've now I've even got partners in my business like Ron Reich, who I met at one of those workshops. This is huge. It can definitely increase conversions. I think it lifted my conversions by about 15% when I put a simple sort of quiz survey funnel for my own website. I've coached clients who are really big into lead generation and they all use this. They all use a survey or quiz or personalized sequential choose your own adventure style funnels on their sites. There are great tool providers out there. I I think you also, you know, a friend of mine, Nick, we have a mutual friend, Nick, he's got leads hook. I know this survey quiz funnel was one of the prime reasons 10X Pro was built to actually produce these sort of funnels as an agency for clients. So most good funnel software or website software is going to have a way to do this. If you're worried about the tech, it's just a matter of thinking about the journey that the client wants to have And I guess you have to map out the possible options they can choose as they're going through this, or does it even matter? I remember seeing a cheeky one that was like, 
uh, like it was in the cost per acquisition space mm. and the whole intent was to get people to fill in their details. But in front of it, they just put a like a who you're going to vote for and they put the two presidential candidates <laughs> and whichever one they chose, then it went to the next page to enter their details. So it didn't really even matter what they chose. Yeah, it's funny you say that because we have actually run both. And to give you some context, sometimes depending on also the sales process behind it, it this is obviously a very B2B you know, specific context. It doesn't really even matter what they tell us because the quiz or the answers is just a way for our sales team to just pick up the phone and dial the number and talk to the talk to the leads. So that is one you know example where we don't really care too much about the answers. You might give us an answer that disqualifies you, but that's okay. Our sales team will still call up anyway. So that's one you know fact that we've seen work. When I did my my own lead hook uh, funnel, so Nick obviously is very big help around this. The way I mapped it out, every single question actually matters to me because we've become very um, picky, I guess is the right word. We've become very specific about who we do the best work for. So if they're not matching up exactly, I can send them off to other suppliers, but I know that you you have to answer these questions in this way to work with us. So it really depends on the context, really depends on what you're trying to sell. If you're B2B, you're B2C, obviously think through it for yourself. The hardest part about the quiz funnels is really just thinking through the flow, what decisions you've got to make, what you want to lead to look like. It's probably the hardest part of it. Once you've got it done, the tech, you know, 10X Pro, Leadtalk, whatever platform you choose, they're, they're easy enough to use. Well, you, look, you can even hyperlink images. If you had no tech ability whatsoever, you could hyperlink yes or no to the next page and so on and so forth. Mm. Where it's pretty powerful, I think, is yes, if there is intent and there are specific answers that change or shift the way the journey goes, you can also take that information and put it back into later on. For example, depending on which options someone chooses on my site, it's going to dictate which onboarding they get when they become a member. Mm. It'll be one of four different potential onboardings, but it'll be related back to one of the answers they put originally. So I'm very interested in serving that. Plus, it allows you to serve up specific testimonials or use cases that relate exactly to the challenge someone's having. So I think, you know, there is multi-million dollar industries around this. I've seen it in the information space. I've seen it in the B2C, by the way, like dog training or any, any you know, fixing mm. flowers. It, it definitely works in all of those markets. <laughs> but the personalization is just critical. One of the ads that demonstrates that, a great story about some old classifieds ad that used to say alcoholics wanted mm-hmm. and it was phone the phone number and the phone number's for a bottle shop. <laughs> but it's calling out the exact type of person they, they wanted to speak to. Uh, okay, so that's number two. What about number three strategy for an evergreen marketing campaign, no matter what Facebook does? Yep, so number three is going back to the idea of giving value first. And traditionally, this is what we call a lead magnet. And for the longest amount of time, the lead magnets have been things like, let me give you a guide, let me give you this ebook or this video on how to do this. But I think what's happened over the past decade, definitely, is that people have started to get a lot of lead magnet blindness in that they don't want to read another 50-page ebook. They don't want to go and read about their problems and then try and figure out a solution for themselves. We've grown accustomed to having everything we want on demand and really fast speeds, essentially solutions at our fingertips. So because the buyer psychology has changed, we're seeing the cost of lead magnet or ebook opt-ins really go up quite dramatically over the past couple of years, especially. That being said, there's a couple of types of lead magnets, which are still working really, really well. And those are checklists and templates. And the reason for that is because the idea of a checklist or a template implies speed. It implies ease of use. It implies that you can take the solution and go and implement it in your business and have a solution to your pains and your problems tomorrow. 
So those are things that are still working. I think they still will work for a fairly long amount of time because, I mean, if you think about it, it's hard to boil down something to you know a faster delivery process unless you're doing it for someone. But at a very early stage, if you're just talking to a lead or just getting a lead through, checklist of templates are you know, such an easy way of both producing a lead magnet and getting people interested in what you have to say. Massive fan of this. I mean, I've seen it. I've actually just had a full review of my own YouTube channel, for example, and the videos that perform best are ones where there's a framework or a checklist or a number of things, like the three marketing strategies example. People will often view through or, or listen to get to all three because they want to collect, they want the whole thing, they, they've, they don't want to miss out. So checklists and templates, love it. In fact, my earliest success online was using a, a cheat sheet, mm. which was basically a, a short user guide on how to get the, extract the most results from a website platform that I was promoting at the time. And I, I managed to build that into a six-figure business. Initially, it was a checklist in an Excel spreadsheet. It was just, I think it was only 20 lines or something like that, which I turned into a PDF cheat sheet. So checklists, templates, frameworks, cheat sheets, these are more useful and valuable in some ways than a long essay or many, many pages. You don't need many, many pages. Exactly. I remember um, one of the first pitch decks for WeWork, according to the, the movie that I'm watching at the moment, which is uh, We Crashed, uh, was 17 pages. So keep it short and keep it punchy. Exactly. So I think with the checklists and templates, the way I look at it is it's such a good entry point into your business and, and what you do. You don't have to overcomplicate it, but you do have to nurture off the back of this. And so a couple of examples in the B2B space, we've got a client at the moment who are trying to sell into a very saturated, very competitive, very difficult market to, to, to sell into. And we've tried a couple of different things you know, that kind of had mixed results. Cold emails worked well, but it's hard to scale that with the scale they needed. They're a funded startup with a lot of money who are chasing big growth. So, you know, cold emails work really, really well on bigger clients, but the mid-market segment they're going after as well, we just needed something different. So what we did was we put together a checklist for their market that didn't necessarily talk exactly to what they were solving, but it got enough of their market to raise their hands and go, I've got a somewhat of a similar problem. And that opened the door for the sales team to follow up and get sales from that checklist. So that worked really well. In a B2C context, I tested this myself and I spent about $5,000 testing this. So not a huge budget, but you know, enough to kind of get some look, look at the data. And we ran a checklist ad leading into a webinar and that got a much cheaper webinar registrations and going straight to webinar itself. So a couple of different ideas on how you can nurture off the back of a checklist or a template. I think the big clue here is that no matter which of these three strategies you use, these are the front end. This is the front part of a bigger system. Nobody stops right there, do they? They just make the one sale and then that's it? No, exactly right. So your back end and your conversion process is so much more important than the front end. We are talking about front end because that's what a lot of people think about and struggle with. But if you have a really good back end system, like you were talking about, James, if you have a $65,000 product, you can afford to test things and to try different things or to even have a more expensive upfront cost because you know that your backend and conversion rates will carry that through. And almost all the big players have great backends. That's sort of email sequences, direct sales teams, webinars, messenger chat resources, even print media, like they're mm. sending out catalogs, physical mail, that sort of stuff. Having a strong backend allows you to have more money to compete on the front end, which is how you're going to be able to survive. And that way, if, if the platform changes and there's a radical shift in the expense, you can still ride it out by getting people into that back end. But you got a couple of bonus tips for us, Will. Yep. Bonus tip one, 
quick one is to try different platforms. So if Facebook isn't working, there's no reason why you have to stay on it. But even if it is working, there's no reason why you have to limit yourself to this. This is my biggest argument. If you found a platform that's working and it's all set up and going, why wouldn't you just pretend it doesn't exist and think about what Mm. would you do? And this is an Eli Goldratt technique of theory of constraints. Let's imagine that Facebook gets blown up tomorrow, that it is no longer uh, legal to use and that it, it completely turns to dust, right? What would you do and why aren't you doing that now? Yeah, exactly. That's such a good point to make. And, you know, I was coaching someone a little while back and they were struggling and you're saying, oh, Facebook's not great. What do I do? And I asked them the exact same question. What would you do if you couldn't use Facebook? And she came up with so many different creative solutions. And I said, well, why don't we do that and pretend Facebook doesn't exist? And it actually gave her the money to go and test Facebook ads. So that's such a great point, James. And I think, um, you know, as you were saying, even if you're doing well on Facebook, try to diversify. So for example, with the client I talked about with the checklist, LinkedIn is actually where we're getting all of the leads at the moment because the quality of leads from Facebook just didn't quite cut it. And even though the LinkedIn leads are more expensive, their sales team can actually get through to them, the right people for them. And you know their product is worth a certain amount and it makes sense to get paid more for the upfront leads because they're better quality leads. So definitely try different platforms. Look, I imagine you could run competitions on Instagram. I've definitely seen them. I'm sure you can use checklists and templates very well as Twitter threads. I imagine you could be a guest on people's other platforms or shows and talk about something that your funnel leads to, like checklists or frameworks would be particularly strong for that. You could make YouTube content with your checklists mm. and, and templates, taking people through them. You could make podcasts like this. You could publish a book on Amazon uh, you know, with the 10 essential frameworks for blah, blah, blah. And you can run ads on the Amazon platform. There's lots of ways you can get people out on different race courses, bringing home the prize money so you can develop your own racetrack, which which is that back end thing. What about a second tip? Yep. A second tip is to try old school stuff. It's funny because I talked about radio and TV advertising, magazine advertising in the first two points. That stuff's kind of coming back around because as more and more people jump off the idea of using that as an advertising platform, there are still people who do listen to radio, who do watch TV, who do read magazines. And yes, the numbers decline every single year, but there's still hundreds of millions of people doing that. So until there's no one on it, it still might be worth a test. And things like cold emails, things like direct mail, you know, sending mail to someone's house, that stuff is still working at the moment. So just try and test different things and use the front end things that you know work and push them across the different platforms. You know, I remember we used to get uh, driver training, advanced driver training tickets at Mercedes-Benz when I was running the dealership. Mm. And I used to get a couple of those tickets and I used to run a competition in the local newspaper, which they published for free. It didn't cost me a cent Mm. to say, you know, this such and such Mercedes-Benz dealer is giving away a couple of tickets for, and I actually pitched it as a sort of driver education for, you know, someone who's on their provisional license to come along and to learn how to be a great driver, to get those essential skills early. And so that showed that we were interested in helping the community. It got our name up there in the print newspaper for free. So those platforms work. I also have a client in a crafty sort of a market. I won't say more than that. And they're running ads on Christian women's radio programs across the United States for just dirt cheap, like dirt cheap. And they're driving people to a specific URL that's trackable only to those advertisements that is using some of the other elements here. It's actually creating shareworthy contest style thing. And it's generating lots and lots of sales for a physical, like a printed product that gets sent out. 
And then on, on the product, we have stickers that um, have a bonus that they can claim that also generates more income. So you know, that starts from a radio campaign. So I just want to alert you, the old stuff is still big. And depending where you live or what you sell, it could be just right there, sitting there, remnant advertising for nothing, like really dirt cheap compared to what you have to pay for Facebook ads these days. Exactly. The old school stuff, I don't think will ever go away. Not in our lifetimes anyway. And you know, if, I, I'm always agnostic about the platform and the channel. If it works, it works. Test, test, test. And once you find something that works, just double down on it. I love it. Will, you're always full of um, wonderful inspiration. And, and this has been a good episode. This is uh, episode 920. So what we'll do is we'll put a short version of this episode as our show notes on episode 920. There will be a full transcription available for download that you can get if you're interested in going through this in more detail. Of course, if you want to get help from Will with your advertising campaigns, if he's a marketing agency, he, he only deals with a certain type of client. But if you suspect you might be the right type, get in touch with Will, growthlabswithaz.com. Will, thanks so much. Thanks again, James. This is James Schramko. 